I've been asked to close this ceremony, marking the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Federal Reserve Act, the law that created the Federal Reserve by looking ahead to the next century. Given the well-known difficulties that economists have in forecasting <laughs> even the next few quarters, I will happily point out one important advantage to making a 100-year forecast, which is I won't be around to explain why it was wrong. <laughs> Our ability to make forecasts is limited, at least. Nevertheless, I'll venture one prediction that I don't think is too bold, which is this. The values that have sustained and served the Federal Reserve at its best and have permitted it to make critical contributions to the economic health of our nation during the past century will continue to serve it and the nation well in the century ahead. Dispassionate analysis, expertise, and commitment to public service, all are values that have served us well. But one value that strikes me as having been at least as important as any other has been the Federal Reserve's willingness during its finest hours to stand up to political pressure and make tough but necessary decisions. The fight against inflation during Paul and Allen's times in office was critical for the nation's longer-term prosperity and required perseverance in the face of heavy criticism. I keep in my office one of the two-by-fours mailed to the Fed during Paul's tenure, which communicates some distinctly unfavorable views <laughs> of high interest rates and their effects. More recently, of course, the Federal Reserve took controversial but necessary measures to arrest what was arguably the worst financial crisis in American history, helping to avert what likely would have been a much more severe economic downturn than the Great Recession that we did experience. Welcome to the Bitcoin Noted podcast. We have as our guest today, Dan Held. Dan, how are you? Doing well. How about yourself? Good. Uh, this is your co-host, Pierre Rochard, and I have here with me Bitstein, Michael Goldstein. How are you? Doing good. How are you? Good. Uh, so today I actually spent a good amount of time listening to Dan on Bottom Shelf Bitcoin. So go check that uh, episode out. And then on Vortex's podcast, uh, check that one out. We'll put both in the show notes so that people can can go. Uh, I, I would be really disappointed if our audience is not already subscribed to those two excellent, high-quality Bitcoin podcasts. Uh, so if you're not, please rectify that. So I, I enjoyed those interviews because, uh, Dan, you've, you're like a, a crypto... Okay, I'm not going to use the word crypto. That's disgusting. Uh, you're a Bitcoin OG... Uh, and you have uh, very coherent and well-written thoughts that you've been putting out um, on really like what I consider to be the fundamentals of the Bitcoin system. Um, and, you know, obviously, like, it's great that people are going to listen to you on other podcasts and, and hear some same information repeated. But I think it's it's OK to repeat the fundamentals. Um uh, but before we we get to that, I wanted to uh, ask you like what, how you got interested in Bitcoin, like what what appealed to you about it, uh, and when, and like what the circumstances were. Yeah, so 
you know, I've got a buddy to thank for that. Uh, my, my, uh, my guide into the Bitcoin universe started with a buddy of mine, Kevin Johnson. Uh, him and I ended up co-founding Zero Block together later in 2013. Uh, he told me about it in 2012. And it really resonated with me as a libertarian. The deflationary nature of the, of the currency was particularly exciting for me. And also the idea that it was being, being used at that time primarily, well, at least publicly, more publicly known as being used for something that facilitated illegal activities, which to me made me more excited because I knew that if it could facilitate those, then it was sovereign level censorship resistant. And so uh, through that, got involved, started to tinker around, you know, sent some money to Mt. Gox <laughs> via, via BitInstant, <laughs> which was a uh, ordeal. Um, it successfully got out the other side and ended up in my Mt. Gox account, which was exciting. Um, and, you know, started to play around with, I downloaded the Bitcoin QT client, um, started to play around with it. And I, I eventually moved to San Francisco in January 2013. And that's when I got plugged into the early Bitcoin community in San Francisco. At that time, it was just, uh, <laughs> I mean, there's only 15 of us. It was Brian and Fred from Coinbase, Charlie Lee, um, you had uh, Jed McCaleb there and the Trade Hill guys, Ryan Singer and Jared Kenna, because it was hosted at 20 Mission, which Jared Kenna owns. So that, that was kind of my initial gateway into crypto. Um, and, and I've been in, been in it ever since. I took a small break in the cold crypto winter, but the uh, last five years I've still been there at heart. Yeah, I, I think that there's very few people who did not take a break during the crypto winter. Like I, I like Michael, were we even talking about Bitcoin in, in 2016? I, I don't know that we like not that much, right? It, it was kind of waning. Um, and then, you know, you and I like took a break from Twitter for a while and stuff like yeah. that. It was, just, it was just kind of quiet until, you know, all of the sort of SegWit 2x stuff was uh, heating back up. Well, even before that, I remember when it got Oh, sorry, to, sorry. Like, no, it was the, the Bitcoin cash. Hmm original well, original hard forking yeah hubbub. the the price though like i remember getting excited when it got to like two thousand dollars i, was no, like, even, oh, I man, remember we're... when it hit a thousand again wow okay <laughs> so, yeah, it's okay. been so long because <laughs> well, it, it snuck up on us because you know it it had been just steadily going down for you know a good year and a half or whatever it was yeah uh but then while we weren't even looking you know it was just climbing slowly and then one day we all kind of like just like realized, hey, somehow Bitcoin's up a lot again, and it's been going up. And you guys didn't sell your company for Bitcoin in December 2013. Oh, man. Yeah. So it was a very cold winter <laughs> to yeah. hodl through all of that. Which makes me think that like maybe we haven't hit the bottom of this bear market if we're still running our podcast and we're still interested in it, right? Like we got to wait until we lose interest in it and then that will be the bottom. We're the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. Or this time is different. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree with you that we haven't really seen the bottom yet. I think there's, for example, Bitcoin Gold still has a half a billion dollar market cap with like $20 million a day traded. And there, there's that amongst a myriad of other signals that would indicate that we haven't really, uh, you know, kind of flushed out that excess in this space. So yeah, I agree. 
Although, how, how low do you think we could actually expect those things to go by the bottom? Because, you know, last time around, perhaps we could have said like, oh, well, Litecoin still has, you know, X amount in its market cap and is traded at this much. And yet, you know, it's not like it actually fully went away. That's a great point. I don't think any of these are going to go to zero. Um, even BitConnect, is, <laughs> BitConnect still has value, right? <laughs> by the dip. <laughs> by the dip, it could come back. So I, yeah, I agree with you. It's never going to go to zero. And I haven't put enough thought and effort into quantifying what bottom looks like in terms of a metric. Yeah, it, it does seem to me, uh, one of the things that seems to be shaping up is just a, a lot more sort of people trying to instigate infighting um, <laughs> on various topics. Um, so that tells me something. I don't know if we're getting to the bottom, but we're definitely going down. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that you have to have infighting. And then the next phase is the rage quit, right? Like Ooh. one of the sides in the infighting throws the, in the towel and, and leaves. Uh, and so like last time that was the block size limit and Mike Hearn uh, and, you know, putting putting a, a post out on the uh, on this New York Times blog. Uh, and we haven't seen that yet, um, but maybe... Maybe the other issue is that maybe we've run out of things in Bitcoin itself. And so the infighting we'll see is like within other coins, whether it's Ethereum or Bitcoin Cash, uh, that we'll see someone rage quit from those. And that's a bottom. I don't know. <laughs> that's an interesting point because the, the infighting of the last bear market was uh, like an actually heated debate over actual Bitcoin fundamentals um, in the case of, you know, how, how do you how, how do you go about scaling? Um, but so far, at least, the infighting just seems to be like how people want to define things. And so it's just all kinds of just kind yeah, of like it, little signaling games for, I don't know, like Twitter points or whatever. And yeah. it's not so much about that. Like we've kind of exhausted, like what are the fundamentals to debate about Bitcoin? <laughs> Yeah, there's not there's not really a lot left that would be contentious. Maybe fungibility, and that's coming kind of coming up on the horizon. But that's I don't consider that a short term conversation. Well, on that note, like we see people who are you know associated with Bitcoin start to get more interested in projects like Grin and Mimblewimble, where you know maybe maybe that'll be like a schism that that we'll see. Um, metastasize into a rage quit <laughs> i i do agree the the rage quit as the bottom is a funny funny way to to quantify this um yeah we we need them to rage quit and sell all their crypto assets well we also on the last uh bear market it wasn't just uh, uh mike hearn we also had david seaman i don't know if you remember yeah. him or his thing but basically there was like that bear whale incident where someone dumped a bunch of bitcoins at the bottom and he had like a mental breakdown because it was uh, so he was so annoyed that people were undermining Bitcoin by selling it. Um, and in hindsight, that was actually the bottom. But he there's like a really good audio clip. I don't know if we can resurface it of him screaming about how these whales are ruining Bitcoin. I, I forgot about that. Man, that's a long time ago. Feels like a long time ago. It's going to be interesting in the future, you know, looking back at a lot of these um, 
debates and, and feelings and all kinds of just the, the, the contextual, the, the context of just being a Bitcoiner and going through this, you know, whole Game of Thrones thing with uh, global monetary competition or whatever. But um, looking back and looking at how minor everything is, you know, um, I remember, you know, for instance, when people were going absolutely crazy about things like Ghash, um, when I think that it hit, I think it actually hit 51% of the network. Um, and there was a nice contingent of people who were like, ah, see, this is the end. And yet, you know, people, especially people who came in in the last bull market, probably had never even heard of such a company. You know, it's funny, I, I was on a panel in San Francisco where we talked about kind of the history of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And it was kind of fun because I got to go down this rabbit hole and I, I hadn't relived these memories in a while. And due to how fast this space moves, I, I heard some statistic and I might be misquoting this, but that the idea that the market moves 5x as fast as traditional markets due to the 24-7 trading, no holidays, no weekends. Um, and be, and because, of, because it trades during those time periods, the market plays out 5x as fast as, as it usually would. And so you see these really intense narratives ebb and flow. And after living through that kind of like real, that, that chop, you feel like you've aged like a decade. Absolutely. I think I aged more from Bitcoin than from having a son. <laughs> it's a lot of stress. Well, the thing too is that like, it's not like the bear market. I feel like the, the emotions from the bear market are like 10% negative and then the emotions from the bull market are like 90% positive and so like I get more gray hairs from a parabolic move where I'm like losing my mind over hyper bitcoinization <laughs> it, it's funny because that I talked about that as well with some buddies and, and we felt like the anxiety level almost went up during during the bull market I, and I think it was just like how insane it got you know just like how crazy that that 2017 bull market got it was it was wild and what's fascinating too from like a a quantitative perspective if you look at that that mayor multiple number of uh the price divided by the um 200 day moving average or something like it's half as much as what we had twice in 2013 uh but i think that that only is an indication of how long this bull market took to build up, uh, where the 200-day moving average uh, had time to uh, catch up with the price, um, and then the blow-off top was uh, like actually psychologically more euphoric than 2013, or maybe I'm just you know misremembering, <laughs> idealizing the past. Beyond that, as far as aging, I just did some you know, basic math in my head. And I never really thought about this. Uh, I've been in Bitcoin nearly a quarter of my life. Or sorry, near, yeah, nearly a quarter of my life. Um, That's crazy to think about. <laughs> so it's definitely aged me. <laughs> yeah, there are nine-year-olds running around who did not live in a non-Bitcoin world. We should maybe take a calculation. We can come up with a new metric, which is the duration of Bitcoin's existence divided by like the average human lifespan or like the average human age. And as a percentage of Bitcoin, in terms of the median age, what is the percentage that Bitcoin has been around during their lifetime? I think that would be a really good fundamental metric. Yeah, ping, ping Nick Carter, <laughs> page <you> Nick Carter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, here's some ideas. <laughs> 
You don't even have to give me credit for the idea. Just uh, just run just the numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I like that. So this is actually, this is something that uh, we didn't really see in 2013, 2014, or at least I didn't see, which is that uh, we now have like crypto funds, crypto hedge funds that like it, it, in 2013, it was like the Winklevoss twins and Barry Silver were the two like funds that were actually getting uh you know traditional investment uh, there's also types. bit angels oh, oh come man. on <laughs> uh, that, that doesn't count <laughs> did, uh, did i ever but, tell you guys what they what they did with zero block so we we never raised money at zero block and i found out that david johnson had been telling people that he was one of the angels in zero block and so i made him issue a press release stating otherwise because I was so wow. pissed when I found out that he had done that. I was like, I can't believe you would do that. Like, that's such a blatant lie. So I, I too, was wronged by David Johnston. Let me tell you my story. Uh, I went out to a group dinner, and David took it upon himself to order us appetizers and uh, then stuck us with the bill. So that's <laughs> that's my story of woe with David Johnston. He is uh, quite the character. Uh, when I had dinner with him, I already knew this story happened, so when he stepped away from the table, I asked the waiter to come over and give me my check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta be careful. <laughs> <laughs> now, Pierre, did he order some vegetables? Is, is that really the issue here? Did he order yeah, some vegetables? Yeah, it was, and... it was fried vegetables. That was the problem. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm sure I'm sure he's a good guy when he's not doing things like that. Um, anyway, so then uh, that that got acquired by blockchain, um, and uh, so do do you have do you have some things to say about your experience at blockchain, or you want to sure. talk about Uber? Yeah, you know, I think both of those are important into in terms of how it's kind of molded my mental model of the crypto space. So that, that might be useful before we dive into some of the topics that I wrote about. Um, so blockchain was a fun experience. I uh, really liked Nick Carey. He was the original CEO and, and the one who, well, him and Roger Veer recruited me. Uh, Roger Veer DM'd me on Twitter <laughs> and was like, hey, we should talk about zero block. And I'm like, okay. And then introduced me to Nick, and then we got to talking about an acquisition, and so they acquired Zero Block. The idea at the time would be that the, the the idea at the time was that it would be, you know, blockchain already had a block explorer, they had a wallet, and this would build out their financial side, kind of like a a world domination play, right? And uh, so that was really cool. I loved blockchain.info in terms of the wallet. It had been a wallet that I had used, so I came on board there as the first product manager. Um. A lot of chop in 2014, a lot of like kind of just getting our shit together. Um, a lot of us were pretty new at, at a lot of things. So it, it was definitely a learning experience. But it's kind of funny. I mean, with CZ worked there for a brief stint. I didn't <laughs> so, know that. That's funny. Yeah. So I've, I've worked with CZ for, I think he was there for about three to four months. So worked with him in early 2014. He, he was great to work with. Um, we had like Andreas as our chief security officer. So it, it was a it was a fun intersection. Um, so after after blockchain, I kind of wanted to go find to do find something else to do, uh, and then I went over to Change Tip, which I love the OGs remember that, which is the micropayments over social media. We ended up failing, 
but learned a lot of things along the way with both blockchain and change tip, which was that people don't want to use this for payments. <laughs> and after designing, after designing and building two of the most popular tools that facilitate that and seeing no traction in that regard, I, I, <laughs> it's definitely shaped my mentality when, when the whole Bitcoin cash hard fork scenario came around, I, I so felt, if, if yeah. I hit pause here, uh, you know, do you, do you see, do you foresee that changing anytime soon? Right. Which is that right now we're hyping up lightning and people are getting interested again in, in payments because of that, uh, because it's, it seems to be different than what we previously had in that the, the uh, payment goes through instantly. And that's a very different UX than what we had with uh, on-chain. And, and that's a great question because Lightning certainly changes the dynamic of how payments work on crypto or, well, specifically Bitcoin. Um, you know, you've got three main core user experience problems, which is that it's uh, the fee is too high which also the intraday volatility should be included in that as well. So the greater the purchase price, the higher uh, nominal intraday volatility, or sorry, notional. Um, then you have speed, which lightning fixes that. It's instant. And then you have ease of use. And from what I've seen with a lot of the different lightning wallets, I think we're getting pretty good with that. I think there's, there's a lot of nuance there that I don't really want to dig in super deep into. So the main thing would be the intraday volatility of the price of Bitcoin would be, I think, kind of the biggest UX hurdle to solve. And if you wanted to use it as a medium of exchange or unit of account or uh, a tool for micropayments. So that, 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 that's like the main UX hurdle that I see now. Yeah. Um, so hopefully as, as Bitcoin's liquidity improves and we start seeing more and more like futures contracts and things like that, it'll be, people will be able to hedge that. I think something else that uh, Lightning has in its favor now is I remember back in you know 2013, 2014. You know, part part of the reason why you would think to make something like Change Tip is the fact that um, you you almost like need a centralized entity to help with all of these payment stuff because um, I I tried making simple apps on my own and it was it was extremely difficult. Um, you know, to put together that software of like you know keeping an eye on the blockchain. Um, in the right way and, you know, all, all of that stuff to do it, you know, self-hosted. And now, you know, especially with stuff like BTC Pay Server, it's, it's much easier uh, for the d developer. And with Lightning, now you have uh, APIs um, and stuff that you can use uh, directly uh, from your web app to, um, you know, your node. Um, so the ease of developer stuff is good. And then on top of that, given all of these things together, um, you know, we'll have to see what people come up with as far as lightning apps, because it could be that people come up with something, you know, completely out of the box. That would just something we didn't think of, like, you know, like, uh, um, Satoshi's place and stuff, but you know, we'll see what else they make. And it might be just so cool that you can't help but uh, give up your bitcoins for yeah it. why didn't we think of drawing dicks on the internet i don't understand why that wasn't an innovation <laughs> in 2014. you know i i think lightning is a great step forward in terms of scalability and usability it's uh i i'm not you know a lot of people have kind of thrown some concern trolling at the pulling away of transactions from the base layer into that second layer and if we look at javin's paradox 
which is that as something becomes more efficient, people use more of it. I'm not super worried about that. I think we're going to see a lot more on-chain transactions happen in conjunction with more payment, lightning payments happening as well. I agree on that. Okay, so uh, that was that was me interrupting you on the uh, topic of change tip. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> Lost our way a little bit there. So after change tip is during the cold crypto winter, I was like, hey, I've 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 only been at small startups. It's time to go do something at a bigger company. And Uber's Uber's culture was very in line with a, a Bitcoiner. Um, they were illegal in every single city they launched in. <laughs> TK was very aggressive in terms of strategy and, and, and kind of company philosophy around building, which I really liked. Um, I think everyone that I worked with was extremely professional and really, really sharp. You know, I got to, when I was at Uber, I was on Rider Growth, led by Andrew Chen. Uh, he's now a GP over at Andreessen Horowitz. And so interacted with some fantastic people. I really, and, and this is where this kind of plays nicely into the, and kind of segues nicely into the next part of the conversation. Each team at Uber had a data scientist assigned. So you were required to bring data rigor into everything that you did. So that data first, data driven methodology and that mindset has kind of been like permanently etched into my brain. And I'm not going to claim I'm a data scientist or I'm, I'm extremely data competent, but I'm somewhat data competent. And I'd like to bring that back to crypto. Yeah, so that was actually, I was going to get to that point with um, these crypto hedge funds, like they are hiring analysts and, you know, they're they're like putting out a combination of really good data-driven pieces. Um, so, well, f one is that I really liked uh, was the HODL waves that came out of Unchained. Fantastic. Uh, um, and... We, we I don't feel like we had that in the past to this level. And then there's also like BitMEX research, um, obviously like Tetros Capital and and all of the the names we we know. And now Nick Carter has uh, his own fund. Um, and I think that like adding some data rigor to this space puts Bitcoin in a much better light than all of the other. Uh, systems that are being implemented right now and uh, you know we see we we then see pushback on it like people saying like oh well you can't apply these traditional startup metrics to uh these crypto networks because uh, it's web this 3.0 web <laughs> and these are different primitives and you guys don't understand open finance you can only use the ones that make sure we win yeah yeah and, and that's where you know we saw one today i'm not going to name the individual but uh, he advocated for using a vanity metric, which was like total transactions done for a dApp rather than the daily active users of the dApp. And uh, that, that kind of offended me in a way because that's not being data-driven in the slightest. And I agree for any product, you're going to want to choose a metric that makes you look good. Look, we're all, we're all humans here. We're trying, to, we're trying to make ourselves look good. However, like if you're going to say that on Twitter, well, you're going to get criticized for it because... At the end of the day here, we're working with a new kind of wave of, of open systems and open open ledgers. I'm going to use this more broadly just for the sake of, of all the people that, yeah. yeah, you know, more open ledgers. like, And these are all inherently interoperable and, and you can communicate between each of those. Data-driven methodology should be first and foremost uh, how we approach this space. 
especially if it's all like or a lot of that data is at you know in in the public essentially with the uh, the transparent aspect of these pseudonymous systems yeah you've got a transparent monetary policy for most of these um, you've got transparent transactions like we should be building rebuilding you know financial analytics from from the ground up yeah um, so let's get into uh, what you're doing at picks and shovels with interchange uh, I thought that was really interesting cool so yeah picks and shovels is the parent company name it's a little QT play on selling the picks and shovels to the gold miners for those who don't know the analogy and um, I met uh, Matt Galligan the CEO and original founder of the company through our buddy uh, Dan Elitzer at IDEO Dan's really really sharp IDEO is doing some awesome things in the space and so Dan paired us up because I was at uber and looking for my next thing you know, I had to return to my first love, crypto, or, you know, Bitcoin and crypto. And uh, Matt had this really great Silicon Valley pedigree of building awesome products. He had an exit to AOL back in 2009, and his last product was Circa News, which was a really popular newsfeed aggregator. And so we started to jam around just the, the huge, immense pain of, of wrangling <laughs> all of your trades and all your transactions across multiple exchanges and multiple blockchains you know, it's this, it's this crazy nightmare. Oh, and then you, this was, we met before forks were a thing. <laughs> and then forks started to become a popular narrative where you've got all these forks happening. And so we were like, you know, how are these new emergent hedge funds dealing with this? And that's where we, we set out to go build Interchange, which is our first product, a portfolio management tool for institutional traders, that being hedge funds, family offices, and BCs. Now, um, you know, we... Matt and I are non-technical, so we brought on a third guy, Clark Moody. And you might remember him from way back in the day in crypto. Uh, ClarkMoody.com was a really popular website, kind of like the uh, the on-chain FX, or you know, it's a really well, not really on-chain FX or Coin Market Cap, more like the uh, Bitcoin Wisdom or the uh, Crypto Watch of of 2011 through 2013. So. Uh, at blockchain, we had acquired Clark's RTBTC, which is the first multi-venue trading platform. And so I had worked with Clark back in the day and Clark was looking for his next thing. And so it was very serendipitous where Matt Clark and I got together uh, to, to build out Interchange to solve this really nasty, hairy problem that all of these hedge funds are having. And uh, when we talked to 75 funds, 80% of them were doing this in Google Sheets. 20% have hired their own in-house development team to build this out. And this doesn't give them an edge. It uh, doesn't give them any advantage of the market. So that's what we set out to go do is, is go build this for them. That's awesome. Yeah, because uh, altcoining is hard uh, and actively altcoining uh, is extremely <laughs> hard. That it is. It's extremely complex. And I'm not sure if anyone's doing it correctly in Google Sheets. Because not only not only do you have obviously like you're talking about like let's say twelve different altcoins or however many they're trading some of them you know multiples of that, but then you have like every, all the different exchanges, and all these different exchanges have completely different APIs. Yep. They've got completely different CSV export formats, <laughs> um, and some of them like don't even make sense necessarily, right? Like. They, they put something together, like a, a developer puts something together in a sprint, and then that's, they ship that. And up until now, they haven't had really a, a serious 
person using that CSV export and then you you export it and you're like, wait, this actually doesn't even have enough information for me to make heads or tails of it and turn it into actual, you know, an accounting debit or credit. Yeah, you know, a couple funny stories here, you know, some exchange APIs don't let you pull data, trade data past a certain point. So you have to ask the fund to export their trade data from certain date ranges and then our API can can pull the rest. And, and then there was one exchange, which I'm not going to name, um, their export showed a Bitcoin outbound transaction as a sale. So if you were to yeah. hand that off to your accountant, you would be counting uh, on-chain transactions as sales, which is which is super bizarre why you would do that. You, you could just label it as transfer, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we're the ones who got to pull up our, you know, roll up our sleeves and, and get into that muck and grime and, and get all those tied together. And then, you know, once we pull that in, we sanitize it, standardize it, and then pull in other other metrics that they might want to care about. They might want to uh, to use as well. For instance, if they have an on-chain transaction, you know what's the price of that Bitcoin on-chain? So they can roll their own index, like a, a volume-weighted average BTC USD price between Gemini Kraken and uh, um, Gemini, yeah, Gemini Kraken and GDAX or Coinbase Pro. Um, so we we pull in that external market data to help them mark their assets as they see fit. Right. And how would you say like the interchange is differentiated from, cause like if you Google around, you'll see some, some uh, products that purport to be cost basis trackers for crypto. Uh, how would you differentiate interchange from those? That, that's a great question. So, you know, what distincts us from retail solutions is that we've built this for institutions. Uh, and with that, institutions require a much higher level of granularity and sophistication. An example of that is, you know, some of these uh, some of these portfolio management tools or tax tools use coin market cap daily daily prices, which is completely obscene to mark mark cost basis at a daily value, especially in crypto with the volatility so high. So we have one minute granularities. So that's, you know, so funds can super accurately mark their data or sorry, mark their trades. And then um, these hedge funds have many, many different stakeholders. They've got different members of their team. They've got a back office team like their fund admin and they have LPs. So we are the kind of the, by pulling all that data together and then visualizing and helping fund managers have optics into the, how well they're doing we can then give their other stakeholders similar levels of visibility. So they can give view only permissions to certain types of portfolio data to their back office team, fund, uh, back office team, LPs, et cetera. Awesome. Uh, and so when, when, is the, uh, when is the beta out? We are rolling out our alpha with four select uh, clients, one of those being Tetris, which we're super excited about. Um, and that's happening over the next few weeks. Awesome. And what, where did the idea to do this come from? Like, is this something that you'd, you'd seen as a problem uh, or heard about as a problem? Elsewhere? Yeah. Well, my dad's a tax CPA, so okay. uh, <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting emailed, you know, back in early 2013, he was emailing me stuff about this and I'm like, Oh shit, <laughs> yeah. uh, this is uh, this is going to be a nightmare to figure out. Cause I'm, you know, I'm shilling Bitcoin back in 2013, which means I'm trying to buy coffees with it to show my buddies that it's use, useful, quote unquote. And uh, 
quickly realized that it was a really nightmare to reconcile that afterwards. Um, so that that seed was planted back in 20, 2014, uh, that first kind of tax season. And then when I came back, I, I, I found that no one had really been working on this. I, you, you've got Libra, which has kind of been working on this, but I, you know, there's, it's really kind of this green field of, of no one wanted to do the boring stuff. No one wanted to go do all the boring accounting and portfolio management things that needed to be done. It's, it's not a glamorous job, right? So we, for me, I, I like those opportunities. I like to build things that are core fundamental utilities to the, to the space. And for the next wave of institutional capital, we're hoping that this helps ease their process in, into trading crypto assets. Right. Uh, and then from the other perspective of like starting a, a crypto business and you're trying to like convince investors that this is a good idea to invest in, like the pushback is always like, well, you know, there's more upside into owning Bitcoin or Ethereum or like all these other tokens. Uh, and it's like a chicken and egg sort of problem where it's like, OK, but if you guys go invest in those tokens and you make money off of those, uh, how are you going to keep track of it? And you've got to like ha have a, a system as well. Um, so how are or, or were those conversations easy because there's investors that are focused on trying to build up infrastructure like that? Yeah, well, it, the conversation was a little bit easier because a lot of these a lot of these VCs that we're talking to have dabbled in buying crypto on their own. So they're like, yeah, my tax, <laughs> they're like tech, getting around to my taxes on a personal level was a nightmare for them. So that, that usually segues, makes the conversation a little bit easier because they've had to do, deal with it on their own personal taxes. Right. And as well, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious that this is a critical pain point in the space that there's kind of a balkanization of different, not only, you know, protocols like different, different chains, but also know different api formats and th there's no standardization in this space yeah i actually i i saw um matt at the block conference here in new york city he spoke about harmony uh do you want to describe what what harmony is yeah so harmony is a csv format that we are uh, championing as kind of an open source way to get all of the different uh, stakeholders whether that be wallets or exchanges to at least have in a, in a CSV output that looks somewhat similar to the other ones. Now, that doesn't give us an edge. It doesn't give anyone else an edge. It's just a thing that we should get around to doing uh, versus, you know, the value that we provide, we think is, is a little bit higher than just dealing with different CSV formats. And so we think that this is something that really would help out everyone in terms of taxes and portfolio management, both on the personal and institutional level. Awesome. Michael, did you have uh, questions on that? Uh, no, not specifically. I hadn't hadn't heard of it. <laughs> Wondering of it now. Uh, that does uh, seem useful, though. Um, what challenges are there with creating like a standard for that? Well, it's. Uh, it, what do you mean exactly? Uh, this is this is a space that I'm not familiar with. I've, I'm not a trader. I don't deal with these exchanges at all. Um, what are some of the biggest pain points when you are trying to collate all this data or, or bring all this data, standardize it? Yeah. Yeah. Just working with these different, different outputs from exchanges, like, you know, either direct connection via API or, or an automated connection via an API or CSV export. 
it's just like the the myriad of different formats that they come in it's the weird edge cases where they'll let you pull trade data they'll let you pull trade data up to a certain point but then they don't provide that via the api you have to go get a csv export there's the hey they've changed the api without notifying anybody <laughs> which uh is a favorite um you've also and got and then you got yeah you got things like where like if you buy bitcoin it'll actually be two rows in the csv it'll be one row for you buying bitcoins and then another row for you selling usd and now you've got to like pair those together to like turn it into one transaction and i think you guys remember this remember when xbt as the uh as the ticker for bitcoin was, yeah. was kind of get, trying to get popularized well kraken still and i love jesse by the way uh kraken still has xbt <laughs> so sometimes you've got these weird uh ticker ticker names for these different currencies uh that that uh, can make that matching a little bit trickier which also you know we, we saw a lot of uh debate with the segwit 2x uh as well as uh bitcoin cash of determining what the ticker ought to be um assuming that exchangers are just going to just you know change things out of the blue when Obviously, if, if everyone's depending on their system, making that kind of change can be pretty disastrous. Yeah, wasn't Bitcoin Cash another symbol? Um, I forget. I, this is kind yeah, of BCC. Lost. Yeah, BCC. BCH. Yeah, yeah. That that was something that was kind of like it was in. It wasn't fully decided if it was BCC or BCH, but BCC is, is was that BitConnect? Yeah, I think so. Man, I, I wish we could have Carlos on the podcast. <laughs> I, I don't think our audio system would be able to handle the the volume on that. You say he has such a beautiful voice. <laughs> um, well, the other thing too, I was thinking when you were talking about uh, you, you mentioned like people changing APIs and stuff like that. That's that's yet another instance I think of where uh, centralization actually helps at some points. I'm just imagining like when. It, when people want to sort of decentralize all the things, um, that means that you have to be able to connect with that many different people. Um, and if it's for something like with, with Bitcoin, you're doing something that's a very straightforward thing. And even that's as difficult as it is. Uh, but as soon as you're trying to get into like ideas, say in like grid computing or something where you're, you're sharing, um, you know, you're you're outsourcing many different parts of your computational engine to different places. Um, that can be tricky, and I can imagine, like, you know, it's it's already difficult enough. A lot of work building web apps today is having to, you know, tie in with various APIs. Um, but if you're going in an even more extreme direction, um, like I, I experienced when trying to build, you know, 21 apps, with you know, kind of like, well, what would a world look like where you're doing Bitcoin payable apps, um, you know, where, where you're paying all kinds of different computers to do all kinds of different things for you all in one process, one program, um, that can get really tricky and uh, very dangerous very quickly. It can actually, in many ways, make it just brittle. Um, and at some point, you just want to, like, tie it to someone directly and just give me the information. Yeah, I think this is a, a question for the crypto space as a whole because this amount of complexity for developers is super intense. Um, you know, and the idea that you build an application in your company on top of a layer that has protocol risk 
you know, you're, you're layering startup risk, operational risk on top of protocol risk. <laughs> it, it's a, it's a really shaky foundation to build on. And so I, I think, I think a lot of developers are in a tricky spot right now. And then on like for the exchanges, you'll see uh, new exchanges pop up. They're like, Hey, we're a liquidity aggregator. So you just go through us and we'll give you access to all the other exchanges. But then they just become yet another exchange with like its own API and its own <laughs> CSE format. It's like, oh my God, there's Thanks. no way out of this. <laughs> it's like the Russian nesting dolls, right? Where you keep yeah. clicking and you're like, where's the liquidity at? <laughs> there's also, I, there was like a quote about like, oh, we're creating a new standard to standardize all these things. And then it's like, oh wait, this uh, the reason that all these things exist is because everyone was trying to create a new standard. Oh yeah, um, did I tell you that Harmony is a token? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I, I think there's a great uh, XKCD cartoon of that where someone was trying to make some new standard for something. It's just like, there well, keeps growing I, I hope that's not. I hope that's not the fate for Harmony. I, I hope that it does become the standard and uh, you guys twist some arms at exchanges so that they uh, all implement it and make people's lives easier. I, I hope it, it uh, gets adopted. I think it's a, a good value for everyone involved. Yeah, because as a developer, like you're you're told, oh, you know, create this uh, CSV export, and you're just like, you look at the database table, and you're like, okay, I guess we can just, uh, all right, I'll just convert this database table into a CSV, <laughs> and it's like, that's like the lazy route. Whereas like how much thought are you actually going to put into, let me go look at what the CSV exports are at other exchanges. Let me go talk with the customer. Let me do like some actual UX research. Like you're not, you're just not gonna do that. Um, and it's kind of an afterthought in the product of uh, exporting this data. Totally, it, I get it. You know, humans respond to incentives. Is the developer gonna get a bonus because he or she had a really awesome X CSV export? <laughs> or even like so. the product manager, like the product yeah. manager, he's he's looking at like the UI on the web interface, not, not extracting data uh, so that you can go use it in Excel. Like that's not their priority. Totally. Um, yeah, so uh, now picks and shovels, you got to interchange. Can you talk about other other ideas y'all are floating, or wh what do you see as kind of the most promising areas in Bitcoin over the next five years? Yeah, I mean, you know, we we wanted the flexibility to where if we wanted to have other products, we could uh, create different branding for them. Uh, that's why we have the Picks and Shovels parent brand, and then the kind of child interchange brand. So right now, there's nothing on the roadmap. We're looking to be a nor no, normal, old, boring company that goes and builds what we set out to go build. And if we do that well, then we'll go build some other cool stuff. So nothing on the uh, near-term horizon. I'd say long-term, like there's some really cool things we could do on-chain to where we could like, if, if it makes sense, if our customers ask for it, for audit purposes, you could take a, a hash of the portfolio and put that on the Bitcoin blockchain and for audit purposes, validate that the portfolio was in a certain state at a certain time. And of course, there's a bunch of caveats with that, and it's not a fleshed out idea, but that's something interesting that, you know, we would love to do stuff on chain if and when it makes sense. Right. That's very pragmatic. I like that. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to start centralized. And if it makes sense to do decentralized things, then we'll, we'll do it that way. Yeah. 
Um, and then have you have you heard from exchanges about like them integrating Lightning so that you can send and receive Bitcoins from an exchange uh, w w over Lightning or uh, is there no noise about that? It's not something that we've asked or have been told. Um, yeah. You know, we're we're mainly focused on taking post trade all of that data. Uh, and so we don't we, we haven't really been commenting too much. On features that wouldn't impact that data that we take take out of the exchange, right? Because I, I could see that like being annoying because you with on chain you get used to the fact that you can get more data by just querying the blockchain. But if it was on Lightning, you can't query for the payment. It's just like state change in a channel that uh, you know it's ephemeral. Right, right. Yeah, with the onion routing, it can be largely. Uh, would be extremely difficult. And and now the onus is on people to actually keep their books together uh, well enough. So I think that that would actually make your service even more valuable because it's not like any amount of forensic accounting can go back and reconstruct the history. Uh, now you've got to actually uh, keep track of what you're doing. Any additional complexity is good for us. <laughs> yep. Um, and what? so what's your like day-to-day -day role at uh, Interchange or Picks and Shovels? Yeah, so my role at uh, Interchange is to be the external sort of face of the company, uh, whether it be business development, marketing, or sales. So I'm the so guy coming on podcasts, talking with us. Is you're doing your job right now? Shamelessly, <laughs> shamelessly shilling my product <laughs> to yeah. every everyone I meet. Um, yeah, you know, I'm based in San Francisco. I'm, I'm on panels pretty often, uh, just kind of promoting our narrative, promoting what we're building. Uh, for me, I've, I have a background in product, so I like to jam out about these pain points because I felt them myself. And so typically it's less me showing and more of me just going like, man, let's just jam on like how painful this is. Yeah. And what's what, what do you think like the uh, on these panels, the sentiment is, uh, especially like obviously like bullish and bearish, but also in terms of Bitcoin maximalism versus Ethereum versus these new uh, new crypto systems, whether it's EOS or Definity or things that are like being incubated and we don't even know about. Yeah, so I just got back from Crypto Springs, which was a phenomenal time. Uh, Meltem is an investor of mine and uh, really close with Elizabeth over at Lightning. So was super stoked to uh, be a part of that. That. The vibe was really cool. Um, so that, that was a very different conference than a lot of the other ones because we're in the midst of SF Blockchain Week right now in San Francisco and it feels a little like consensus in terms of the parties and, and kind of the social aspect. Um, at, at Crypto Springs, it was invite only. Really, I think, well curated individuals who went. I think everyone who went, despite having different philosophies on the space, whether that be Bitcoin maximalism, or really big into Ethereum or XYZ, you know, I think as a whole, everyone is high caliber in terms of conversation. So you weren't, you weren't dealing with uh, ICO consultants, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, have kind of infiltrated the space a lot. You know, you had real conversations about where you dug in deeply on, on different things. And this wasn't a conference where people wore suits and, and just walked around and, and had booths. You know, this was a conference of a, semi indoor outdoor vibe in palm springs which is already kind of a more chill relaxed area and so you were able to kind of 
go off in these little corners and, and have really cool intimate conversations with people. And so it was really geared towards that, which, which was great. And to answer your question, uh, what's the vibe like? I think everyone's still very optimistic, which is uh, also why I don't think the bottoms, the bottom <laughs> is in yet. Um, I think everyone wants, you know, the Bildle, Bildle meme is, is becoming popular. And so I think regardless of if it's like Bitcoiners or Ethereum crowd or, or Tezos or whatever, you know, I think people are, are excited to go build and there's not a lot you can do when, you know, the, the, I encountered this in the, the uh, bear market back in 15, where uh, this is not, if you know, if your metrics aren't improving, you just got to go build. It's the only thing you can do. So I think a lot of people are taking that, that stance. Do you think that there's, yeah, there's... Um... Uh, inherent conflict between build and hold like because obviously like you're doing both so I, I would argue that there is not uh and plenty of other people are doing both um and yet it's framed as like oh bitcoin specifically is full of holders who are not actually uh, building anything <laughs> yeah I, I really don't like that narrative and that's why my first medium post was holders are the revolutionaries um Holders play a really important part in the ecosystem in terms of they were the original ones that gave the network value and they continue to give the network value. And that incentivizes developers to build applications in companies like Coinbase. And so I think holding is a very critical part of building because without the holders, none of this would be worth anything and we wouldn't even be on this podcast right now. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, all right, so we're coming up on an hour. Michael, uh, did you have any... Any last questions for Dan? Well, so I, I have actually not listened to those other podcasts. Uh, did you talk about the whole energy thing in those other podcasts? Yeah. Even well, if you did, let's get into it because uh, it's it's worth reiterating. Yeah, well, this, this never goes away. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I have to remind people, like, it was uh, not the first email thread, the second email thread that Satoshi put out when um, he actually put released the code. Uh, sorry, when the, the network was was launched. Um, one of the first there there was a there was a response from John Gilmore, um, who's founder of the EFF. Um, it didn't show up in the actual thread itself, but it was sort of responding to this whole discussion. And uh, he was worried about uh, Bitcoin because it would be uh, causing so much uh, carbon to enter the atmosphere. And so basically the environmental concerns have been baked into this thing since day one. Um, and I think it's really in the past, uh, the, this past bull market is when we've really seen um, the most hysteria out of it. I think because it's, it's gotten very big um, and also because it's gotten big, so it's on people's minds in the first place, that also means that you're inherently going to have more mining, meaning more electricity, meaning more hysteria. Uh, so you wrote an article uh, called POW is efficient. Um, so could you just share some of your main thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you know, this is something as a as a person who really, really likes Bitcoin and has been interested in the space for a long time. You know, this is we've all been subjected to all these negative narratives, whether that be Bitcoin is only used for money laundering and drugs to Bitcoin's energy, energy requirements are going to destroy the world. It's all the energy is going to be sucked into a Bitcoin miner and it's going to turn into a black hole. And then that's the end of humanity. So 
you know, I why I started writing these articles is I felt like certain narratives had been so misconstrued that they were so far away from the truth that someone had to go out. And again, it's my perspective. So there's a lot of perspectives, but someone had to go out and at least approach it from a somewhat data-driven manner. And that, that's what I decided to do with proof of work. And so at, at its most fundamental level, everything requires energy. It's the laws of thermodynamics. Whether you sneeze, whether you eat, whether a car is fueled by gas, everything requires energy. And no energy be, can be created or destroyed, merely transferred. So, you know, starting from the most fundamental level, all work is energy. Even proof of stake requires energy. And a, not a non-insignificant amount as well. Um, and also the idea that money is a representation of energy and time. That it's a it's a well, you can consider it a a stored energy in a way, and this is why it's because it's fungible. That if you took that dollar and you paid someone to dig a trench, or if you took that dollar and and paid someone for another service, or you took that dollar and bought an apple, well, that unit of money represents time and energy that someone else spent to sell you that good or service. So, money is a store of energy and time. And so I, I wove that together and kind of kind of looked towards how that, that matters with Bitcoin. Because uh, back in the early 20th century, you had Thomas Edison and Henry Ford avid, advocating for an energy-backed currency. And so they were, they were onto something there in terms of the idea that like kilowatt hours becomes a unit of account and that can, that can you know, we could use electricity as a method of, of kind of um, regulating or coming up with a monetary policy. And so I don't want to spend too much time there, but, you know, moving forward, proof of work is really about taking what's in the physical world and, and using that as a bridge to the digital, you know, intuitively in the physical world, we build walls around things that we care about and proof of work uses energy to build digital walls around the things that we care about the Bitcoin blockchain. And so I felt like a lot of people really hadn't approached proof of work from a physics-based perspective, just kind of going back to the fundamentals. And so that's kind of the intro to the story. Mm -hmm. um, I can go all the way through if you'd like, or we can kind of jam on this for a minute. Well, you know, uh, one thing that I thought was interesting, if you could just tell a little more about the history, uh, you talked a little bit about aluminum. And I noticed that... Uh, so you, you talked about uh, aluminum as being a way for people to sort of, quote unquote, export electricity um, to other places. Uh, but you even, you, you talked about how people believe that there is an unfair energy consumption for aluminum specifically, and people thought like it was being too centralized. Um, yeah. could, you, could you talk a little more about that and sort of the analogies to Bitcoin? So Nick was really helpful here. Him and I actually did, read the same article from 1979. <laughs> and in one of our chat rooms, I had posted it. And Nick was like, hey, I, I thought about that. And I'm like, I think we actually coincidentally read it in parallel. Um, because uh, the reason why aluminum is analogous to Bitcoin mining is because both are commodities. Now, Bitcoin is a super commodity minted from the most fundamental commodity of the universe, which is energy. And aluminum is a commodity that is minted or created through bauxite and energy, but it takes a lot of energy. So 
the industry it was uh, the aluminum uh, smelting industry was was highly analogous because of that high energy requirement and so after reading into it i found all these amazing stories about in 1979 people are complaining that man all these aluminum companies are stealing our electricity <laughs> and uh, they're like oh man they're they're taking over these these big bad evil corporations are are taking over and they're going to come steal all the electricity from the poor people and and so I found that that narrative was really funny because it's very similar to, to the Bitcoin mining, uh, negative Bitcoin mining narratives. And um, there was a quote from the Icelandic, I, I think, prime minister or prime minister of finance. Uh, I forget exactly his title, but he's quoted as, and, and what he says is that in Iceland, we have disparate energy sources that are trapped. We cannot export this electricity because we would lose all that electricity through the transmission lines. But the, the idea being that we we export our electricity through through aluminum smeltering smelting, and so that really struck me struck a chord in me, and I felt like that was something really compelling to share um, about Bitcoin proof of work mining because it's really really similar that we can use Bitcoin miners as a way to export electricity as a mm -hmm. sort of energy coin. This is actually I, I first heard about this concept when I guess it was. Uh... Peter Todd had been speculating on the ways that you could perhaps do mining in space. And it was this idea that, you know, if, if you have, like if, if humans were able to create a Dyson sphere, or just any kind of means of, of good electricity sources in space, I mean, mining for hydrogen or whatever, you name it, um, the actual process of getting that back would be very, very difficult. Um, but if you can send it just back in the form of this highly economic good, um, a digital string of numbers, um, then you can make use of that uh, just as well. And it's, it's way easier. So um, that, that was when I first heard about it. It's a very mind-blowing concept. Um, and it's certainly interesting to me how this does ground Bitcoin as just, it's, just, it's, it's another, it, it's, it's new in so many ways, and yet it's the same thing in so many other ways. Um, and people want to use fancy terms like crypto economics and stuff like that. But it actually, there, there's so much to learn from history already um, that to me, Bitcoin fits very, very nicely in our sort of mental history of humanity um, from, from, you know, salt and cattle to gold to Bitcoin. Um, and likewise, you know, uh, in, in the energy story of, um, you know, as you're describing. Totally. And, and that's where after reading so deeply into this, I realized like Satoshi must have read some of these things. And I had, I had a few quotes from from him in there. Um, I forget which ones. It's It's been been a few weeks since I've looked at it. But, uh, you know, Satoshi's brilliance and in, in his understanding of, of the world, the physical world, and the digital one was truly exceptional. Um, the the interdisciplinary or the cross, sorry the cross disciplinary uh, knowledge that he had was was incredible. I mean, he definitely read Nick Szabo. He definitely knew economics. He definitely read up on Austrian School of Economics. Um, and you've got you know, a dozen other things that he was knowledgeable about. And I'm certain that he probably read up on aluminum smelting <laughs> after going down this. He, he must have. Um, so, yeah, it was really fascinating. You know, it's really, a, it's a, it's the, 
you know, we could find equivalences, uh, like an equivalent, uh, like, you know, it, 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 with Bitcoin, you transmute electricity into gold. And same with like uh, different, different substances uh, that you distill into alcohol. And it's a one-way function. And the output of that is this highly distilled, highly more, much more usable uh, substrate. And, and Bitcoin is just a, a new form of that. So how, how does this analysis extend into when we are in a, after the block reward is done, although, you know, arguably before that, and we're just talking about transaction fees, where um, it's like, we're not really, we're not using all that electricity to create new Bitcoins per se. They're like recycling Bitcoins. Yeah, it's more like gold recycling. Yeah. yeah, which actually in the analysis I make a and at the end of my uh, article I, I make an analog an analogy to existing energy and uh, U.S. dollar value requirements for these different uh, monetary systems, which gold recycling is one of those, or I think is one of those. I, I know is in the draft. I, for, I forget if I included in the final final version. Um, I know you did point. I think it was in this. You pointed out. Uh may have been something else that I read, but pointing out how many people die in like gold mining operations. <laughs> was, that, was that in your article or something else? Uh, so the original source that I quoted, uh, because, you know, I'd, I'd like to call out the, the people who wrote the content that I assemb assembled here, because um, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. These people spent a ton of time and effort putting some of this stuff together. And I, I Think that my value is in the stitching together of these different narratives into something really simple and cohesive. So, yeah, the original analysis they they had, uh, I believe they yeah they highlighted how many deaths occur in gold mining, and I think it was close to like fifty thousand over the last century. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and and that was particularly fascinating because if you include things like that, um, you know we're not just I we're not just looking at energy and and U.S. dollar costs. We're looking at we're looking at human deaths and and much other you know more material issues and so you know that that was that was particularly interesting to go down this rabbit hole and I, I think not a lot of people <clears throat> really really think about something as holistically as this right they look you go to work and you use your dollars and you, you that's it that's all you think about currency and so when you hear that something else uses a large amount of electricity you don't a lot of people just don't think about it intuitively which is well, how much electricity am I using um, in my, uh, with my own monetary system? And then you get into like third order effects, because if, if for example, you know, if, if gold were demonetized, then we would have a lot less gold mining. And so a lot fewer deaths, a lot less pollution, a lot less electricity consumption to create gold. But if that's not the only asset that people are currently using as a store of value. So, for example, Manhattan real estate. If that were to be demonetized so that people are not buying empty apartments and, you know, luxury apartments uh, and then not living in them, uh, <laughs> then, you know, like that means that that many fewer people have to commute into Manhattan because then they can affordably live uh, on the island uh, and then apply that to uh, London or other major cities where people treat uh, high end real estate as a store of value. Yeah, we can we can go down the whole store value rabbit hole if we'd like. <laughs> it's a uh, I, I agree. Store value is much bigger than just money. It's uh, or what we call money. 
I think more broadly, and I apologize, some of the, my, my internet sort of cut out when um, both of you were talking, but, um, you know, more broadly speaking, it's like, I think people just underestimate the, the extent to which sort of these pillars of civilization um, extend and like the, the effect they have and like the necessity of them. So like something like money, people, people have a hard time wrapping their head around just how many things in their life it touches, which is, by the way, everything. Um, and likewise, you know, having, having a rule of law, property rights, all of these things, it gives us the ability to even be sitting around thinking about these topics. Totally. I, you know, most people don't think about, okay, what's the air conditioning requirements of all the bank branches in my country? And, and the humans that man those branches, how much food do they consume? And how many homes, how much, how much electricity do their homes consume? <laughs> and then you go down and you're like, you know, how about uh, armored cars? Like their, their, their fuel efficiency and mm -hmm. the cost to build the vehicle and to build the bank branch originally. And then the bank servers. And yeah. I'm going to, so I, I want to push back on a narrative that I see a lot with uh, people defending Bitcoin, which is that they say that, um, well, actually, Bitcoin is is cheaper than this alternative, um, and I think I think rhetorically that's a a poor position to take because the the reason that we use it is because it has a certain value to us, like we're willing to pay the costs, and I think it's important to to actually accept all of the costs, even at the worst. Like, you know, I like to say that, you know, yeah, Bitcoin might take up 50 to 80% of the entire global energy market, but there's a reason that people are willing to take, play that cost. Um, and uh, something that had a big effect on my, my thinking in this way was reading um, a bit of uh, Alex Epstein's book, uh, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And he talks about how people don't always take this holistic view of the costs and benefits. They only look at the costs or they only look at the benefits. Um, and so because of that, you can, you can take a position of fossil fuels are evil, um, but you don't, a, a lot of those people um, don't, don't take into account well, what are all the benefits of that that make the cost worth it. So for instance, you know, if you want, like there's, there's a lot of people um, in this world, you know, living in third world countries that have access to um, generators that run on fossil fuels. And it's just by the fact that those that that market and energy exists for them, that they can have, you know, uh, any hope at all. And so it's actually it's it's a great thing for them. Um, and I, I think this mindset permeates a lot. Um, and I think it, it sort of starts with um, you know, not not just accepting things do have costs and that's okay because it's worth it. Everything requires work, everything requires energy, and everything has a cost. And so you're you're completely correct. Like just focusing on the cost and not not in the same sentence ever talking about the benefit is very disingenuous. And and likewise the other way around. Right. Right. Yeah, like I'm I'm not going to back into the the functionality and, and usefulness of Bitcoin and then justify the cost, it, there's always a trade-off. And so, yeah, and, and, and that's the thing is, every, you know, these miners aren't stealing electricity. <laughs> they're, they're paying for it. They're paying market price for it. Just like the aluminum uh, aluminum companies as well. 
and we all stored our time and energy into a digital unit of Bitcoin. And we, we, we decided to store our time and energy into that. And, and that is all opt in. And, and we certainly get the benefits from that. But there's there's a cost as well. And we're willing to pay the cost to acquire that that representation of, of time and energy. So are you telling me you're willing to pay the cost of destroying humanity and the entire planet <laughs> as we know it uh, because you like this Bitcoin I'll, thing? I'll escape on my uh, SpaceX, my SpaceX rocket with uh, a white a white cat. Hmm. Um, all right. Do we do we have any other um, uh, other questions? I, I think we're my we're my time. internet messed up again so i yeah that's oh uh dan dan was talking about how he's becoming a super villain yeah if, if i destroy oh, the if through bitcoin mining if that destroys the the world i'll, I'll escape on my spacex rocket with my white cat with elon <laughs> there's the dream yeah i think one last note on proof of work is that and this is where i, I went to a little sci-fi with it which is that i hope and and, and i think through the the through proof of work or Bitcoin mining's proof of work function, it is the buyer of last resort. It is the, the it is the buyer of disparate electricity sources that would have otherwise gone untapped. And okay. through the incentivization to harness energy around the globe more efficiently and harness all sorts of sources of electricity, that as a whole will push humanity forward towards a type one energy civilization which is a civilization that harnesses all of the energy available to it on a planet, which leads to a really cool, really cool set of circumstances. Uh, one of those being that, for instance, we could desalinate, or we could take a seawater and remove the salt from it, and that we would be able to solve our freshwater uh, problem, or shortage, the freshwater shortage problem. So that that's like one example of something we could do with cheaper and, and easier to harness uh, energy. Mm-hmm. It's getting, uh, yeah, it's getting I'm, very sci-fi. I'm, <laughs> I'm super optimistic about um, everything surrounding Bitcoin, <laughs> including including its energy prospects and everything else that it incentivizes, um, both by being sound money, but also specifically what Bitcoin requires um, out of the universe to be running it. So, uh, yeah, so I really liked your article, and uh, thank you for writing that. No problem. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Likewise, likewise. And the um, I I feel like you should you should submit it to like Bloomberg or uh, a, another you know well known blog so that it gets out there because they they're always running these pieces that are like ridiculous fear mongering on this issue. Right, it, and they don't show the other side. No, I'm I'm a fudbuster. So I made this to where you can copy paste the link at any journalist who writes about it. Um, in fact, Mike Dudas did this today with Bloomberg where he, yeah. uh, he got super triggered and, <laughs> and he's like, you gotta read, you gotta read Dan's article. And I'm like, Oh, this is kind of cool. Maybe, maybe it will pop up in, in mainstream press sometime. But yeah, that's my hope is that, uh, you know, people can use this as a resource. Whenever you hear proof of work, is going to destroy the world. You can use this, and you can you can copy paste it, or you can copy paste text from it, and hopefully it, it enables us to go spend our time on more productive things rather than each one of us going digging going and digging up this research ourselves. 
Yeah, it's it's a capital good, and it, it pays dividends. Maybe we could also be making our own clickbait FUD. Like, here's, you know, 10, 10 ways in which the USD is killing babies. <laughs> yeah. So I actually did that after I published. I created I created 10 tweets called, so I had little sirens, little siren emojis with electricity police in all caps. And <laughs> I, I highlighted... Uh, electricity usage, for example, PS3s and Xboxes in the U.S. annually use $1 billion worth of electricity. And I was like, electricity police, how dare you use that? What an unproductive usage of electricity. And, and, and just right. the idea of someone pointing at you and being like, hey, hey, you over there, that selfie you're taking, sir, that is a waste of electricity. Excuse me. <laughs> it's so subjective, right? Like, so... To, to have someone play electricity police, it's just border, it's borderline silly. Although I, I don't know how it is in other countries, but I'm sure you remember, you know, when we were kids, there was plenty of like constant, you know, turn off the like uh, PSAs on television and stuff about always like turning the lights off after you leave a room, you know, turning the faucet off, um, all of that stuff. It's constantly cropped up in my childhood, at least. Totally. Uh, Dan, any any last uh, parting thoughts before we close up the episode? Well, yeah, I think we we covered it pretty well uh, on proof of work today. Um, let's see. I was trying to think about if anything popped up afterwards. I I don't have anything else today. All right, uh, we'll have you back on the show uh, when uh, as interchange evolves, as as you guys uh, launch publicly and uh, things, you know as more FUD gets written and uh, debunked. And as the first, you know, mass extinction happens, thanks to Bitcoin <laughs> and your devious plan. FUD extinction. I, I got tired of it. After five years, I'm, I'm fed up. I'm going to bust all this FUD. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, maybe maybe picks and shovels can become a uh, electricity utility company at some point, right? And you can build thorium reactors. <laughs> we'll, we'll sell them the blueprints and the shovels to go build it. There you go. <laughs> All right. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode and you like uh, the Noted podcast and you want to watch the recordings of these live, you should join our Patreon on patreon.com slash noted, N-O-D-E-D. Uh, go follow Dan Held, at Dan Held on Twitter. Right? There's no underscore there, is it? Nope, just yeah, plain old Dan Held. Awesome. That's... Uh, H-E-L-D for those of you who don't know how to spell. Uh, a very... I love how you live up to your name. I know, it's for the bear market. It's mm, poetic. <laughs> yeah. I, if you're born as a meme, you might as well own it. <laughs> well, I mean, like, Bitstein has no problem owning his meme of, you know, formerly Goldstein and now Bitstein. Uh, my, my last name, nor my first name, they don't lend themselves to being memeified at all. So I've, I've given up on that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was worried about it from an OPSEC perspective for a while, but it's too easy just to switch the D and the L. So <laughs> I've, I've gone in. Yeah. Uh, and then you can follow uh, at Interchange HQ on uh, Twitter as well. They've got an active Twitter account. Uh, and at PixCo, P-I-C-K-S-C-O, the uh, parent company. Um, and we should also, we should plug Matt. Uh, I know he's on Twitter as well. Yeah, he's he's OG, so he has MG. That's his Twitter wow. handle. Yeah. At MG. Follow, and, and he's got the blue check mark. Look at that. He's verified, man. Beautiful. Yep. <laughs> awesome. 
and and congratulations, Matt. I see here that you're a, a new father as well. So that's that's awesome. Yeah, both of my co-founders have kids, so I'm the uh, I'm the one that goes to the conferences, and I <laughs> they keep me out till 12 p.m. hanging out with potential clients and other partners. So they sacrifice the young single guy. Yeah, exactly. All right, thanks for coming on. Uh, Michael, any, uh, oh yeah, follow at Bitstein on Twitter as well. <laughs> I, I hope that everyone listening to this already follows Michael, but you never know. <laughs> Go ahead and follow at Pierre underscore Rochard while you're at Thank it. Thank you. Uh, and uh, at Nakamoto Inst, uh, the Nakamoto Institute. And Noted uh, Podcast. Yeah, follow at Noted Podcast as well. Uh, subscribe if you have not already subscribed. Uh, share it with a friend or two. Um, especially share it with that guy who is like bordering on being an altcoiner, but is un unsure. And so maybe you can tip the scales there. And uh, if he is an altcoiner, definitely share it with him so that at least like it, it's bizarre to me how many altcoiners don't really understand Bitcoin very well. Because it's like, wait, aren't you like subscribing to this altcoin because it's better than Bitcoin, but you don't know what your baseline is. So what's going on <laughs> anyway? That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you. Get yourself in the right mindset. And the mindset is you're trying to take care of yourself like you would care for someone that you cared for. And that's a hard mindset to get into because people like their pets better than they like themselves often. <clears throat> and then you have to have a vision. And so the vision would be, well, okay, three to five years down the road, if your friendship networks were configured properly, what would that look like? If you were pursuing the career that would be appropriate for you and sustaining for you, what would that look like? How are you going to educate yourself? How are you going to take care of yourself mentally and physically? What do you want for an intimate relationship? And how are you going to handle temptations like alcohol and drug abuse? Because they take people down pretty frequently. So all you have to do is think about, okay, what could that be like if you had what you needed? not some wild fantasy, but, but realistic in what you needed. So that's the first part. And then, okay, now write for 20 minutes about what your life could be like three to five years down the road if all of this came together. And then now do the opposite. So imagine all your weaknesses and all the ways that you can go down the wrong path. And then imagine that gets the upper hand. Then imagine where you are in three to five years. So then you get a polarity. Eh? It's like, not this and that and yes this so you can run away from the things you don't want and you can run towards the things you do want that gets your anxiety behind you instead of in front of you right because maybe you're going to go do something difficult and you're afraid of it and then you think well if i don't do this i'm going to end up there it's like oh okay that's <laughs> so terrible that this little terrible is nothing so and then in the next part of the exercise, you turn that into an implementable plan, you know, and you write about why your life would be better and why your family's life would be better and why your community's life would be better. So it's like fully articulated. And we've tested about 10,000 university students with that now in three different locales. And we've increased the probability that they'll stay in university by about 30% and raised their grade point average about the same. And it's worked best for men who are most who were doing the least well. So in Holland, those were non-Western ethnic minority men, and they improved their performance enough to actually slightly exceed the 
Dutch national women who were at the top otherwise over two years. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. It just blew us away. A psychological intervention to cure what's in hypothetically a sociological problem. And so, and so that, that's a good example of how, and it, it, what, what blew me away when I was first considering this is I had all these students, 21 years old, and I realized that no one had ever sat them down, not even once in their entire career in education and said, okay, who do you want to be? Like, what sort of person is it that you want to be? Not, not job, it's like character. What do you want your life to be like? What should it be like? And what shouldn't it be like? And like, write about that seriously, like your life depends on it, because it does. And, and then I thought, well, that's so weird. Why in the world isn't our education system set up to help people with that? Because it's like, that's kind of obvious, you know? It's like, what are you doing and why? And then I did some reading partly from John Gatto, who's done some interesting work looking at the history of the education system. And it was a derivation of the Prussian education system back in the late 1800s. And it was designed to produce obedient, obedient, well, it was partly soldiers, but it was partly workers. Oh, I was going to say it definitely was soldiers because yeah. that, that was the transition when they, t they had the transition take place at that time as well, where they moved away from centralized command after they got beat by Napoleon. And it, it, they never, they, they were constantly trying to fight towards that direction where the soldiers would not just be obedient because they realized that that is not what they actually wanted. They, they finally started to do it at the end of World War One. And, and if they would have done it earlier, it might have turned the tide of the war. But that was what, you know, that's what World War Two, the Blitzkrieg and, and total decentralized command and elements just going out and making things happen and finding gaps in the defenses and attacking them as opposed to you're just going to wait until you're told what to do. Right. And that was the, the German way and decentralized command. So right. It yeah, was, well, well, competence beats obedience. <laughs> right. So you unite people under a goal. And then you let them act autonomously. You got to get them. You got to not sell them the goal. That's not right. You know what you have to do is you have to go in and talk to them and discover what the goal is of the enterprise and what it is that fires people up. 